Hello and welcome to the Rhodes Climate Leadership Series with current Rhodes Scholars interviewing Rhodes alumni about their work in the climate space. My name is Claire Wong. I'm a 2019 Rhodes Scholar from the United States and I focus on climate energy policy. And I'll turn it over to Grace to introduce herself. My name's Grace Henry. I'm a 2020 Rhodes Scholar from Australia, currently studying a Master of Energy Systems and passionate about energy policy. Excellent. Uh, we are delighted to have Dr. Catherine Wilkinson joining us today. Catherine is an author, strategist, and teacher working to heal the planet that we call home. She is a Rhodes Scholar and graduated from Oxford with a doctorate in geography and the environment. So thank you for joining us, Catherine. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Um, thanks for doing this series. Thanks for having me. So Catherine, you're the author of four books, a co-host of a podcast, a frequent public speaker, and you delivered a TED Talk which has over 1.9 million views. Tell us what drew you to the space of climate communication. So I think for a long time, I have been really interested in the stories that we tell about ourselves and about our relationship with this planet, right? That we all, all call home. And I, that was really an interest that birthed in high school. Um, when I was 16, I spent a semester uh, living in the woods with 25 other kids. It's when I started reading the work of Mary Oliver. I read Daniel Quinn's uh, kind of seminal book, Ishmael, um, and started to ask those questions, right, about how the stories that we tell set the framework for our sense of responsibility or lack thereof, our sense of connection or lack thereof. Um, and then my, I had a year in between undergrad and, and coming to Oxford and I worked for a big environmental NGO called the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is headquartered in New York, but I was spending most of my time in, uh, in Tennessee with rural county mayors, with the governor's office. Um, and I was just really struck by how very much kind of the mainstream uh, kind of big green environmental movement just speaks right past most of America. <laughs> um, even people who really care about land, who care about place. Um, and that was in the midst of the second term of the Bush administration. So there was also already this sort of deep partisan um, fissure around environmental issues and specifically specifically climate. And so I was kind of grappling with, with these questions around political will and public engagement and how do we reach people. Um, and that year, an initiative called uh, the Evangelical Climate Initiative was launched. And it was a group of very high profile evangelical Christian leaders in the US who came out with a full page ad in the New York Times and in Christianity Today, I saw the Times ad that said, our commitment to Jesus Christ compels us to solve the global warming crisis. And I was like, where did this come from? <laughs> what is this, right? This feels very, this runs very counter to, you know, certainly the stereotype that I had learned of like, you know, evangelicals and the Republican party kind of march and lockstep with one another, but clearly this was a real break from the Bush administration. Um, and I dug a little bit deeper and, and got quite fascinated by 
how this sort of narrative and framing was unfolding, um, as well as kind of the organizing work um, within that community. And so when I came to Oxford, I knew that I wanted to, to do research kind of on some aspect of that. Um, and I ended up um, yeah, focusing on what was at the time kind of this burgeoning climate movement um, among at least some of American evangelicalism and, and specifically looking at that through the lens of, of discourse um, and framing and narrative shift. Um, and that was fascinating um, and also in some ways frustrating to sort of sit like sit on the academic sidelines, kind of, you know, assessing how other people are doing this. Um, and so fast forward some years after that, it was really exciting for me to then get to do some of that work, right? Like hands in the dirt, <laughs> shaping the story that, that we tell, um, or one of the stories that we tell through the work that I did at, at Project Drawdown. So yeah, you never know, I guess, what seeds get get planted at age 16 um, that then, you know, come come to bear fruit. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing the journey. How have you seen the engagement with the general public throughout your career? How has that changed along with um, the communication? So the the polling data is, um, is promising. Um, we've had, you know, sort of a slow but pretty steady march and and I am more familiar with kind of where the 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 research sits on this in in the context of the US but I think it's sort of you know we're we're behind lots of parts of the world um but I think it's sort of the trends are roughly roughly applicable um that you know we now have a very clear majority of folks who understand that climate change is happening, they're worried about it, and they think that we should be doing more, right, on any number of things, and particularly around um, around clean energy, and that's exciting. Um, and the other thing that kind of the the most recent social science tells us as well is that um, it's it's more robust, right? Like people are more convicted in where they stand now than they were a few years ago, right? Where you might be sort of seeing people kind of shift spaces between, yeah, I'm concerned, like, mm, I'm kind of ambivalent. Um, now people are, it's like a pretty steady state there. And the the crowd that, you know, I was certainly thinking a lot about when I was doing my, my PhD research, which was 2006 to 2009, um, were, were was the denial camp, right? And that crowd has also very steadily declined. I think the latest numbers from Yale are something like 7% um, of the American public. They're very loud. They seem very active on Twitter, <laughs> um, but they're quite small, right? And I think that's another thing that has really shifted um, and I think still we're giving the average person really like trite and consumerist recommendations on what they can do, right? Like it's still way too much on individual behavior change and not enough on collective action. And, um, and so that means there's also still too much of this sense of like shame and guilt, right? Like I don't want people obsessing about 
kind of what they're getting wrong in their individual life. I want us thinking about how powerful we can be together. Um, and I think there's really exciting narrative shift that's happening there too. And of course, the youth climate movement has had a lot to do with shaping that and helping that get traction um, and shaping also the narrative that we can be multi-solving for the near-term needs that people and communities are facing and solve for this long-term diffuse global challenge at the same time. And that when we do that, it's more effective, right? And that's another way I think of, of welcoming people in that's really, that's really critical. I really appreciated what you said about the evolution of narratives now in the climate space to be really emphasizing putting communities first and addressing structural challenges rather than sort of individual guilt-laden behaviors. Um, it seems like, at least in my experience, there has been a lot of understanding about these necessary changes in messaging and narrative over the past several years, but they haven't always been implemented in practice. So I'm, I'm curious if you can talk more about the difficulties of creating a coherent narrative around the climate problem and the climate solution for the entire movement beyond a specific individual or organization. Yeah, I think it has been a real challenge to get sufficient funding and resourcing for narrative change work, um, but also for kind of power building organizing work. Um, you know, I think there's been a longstanding bias from not all, but, you know, lots of climate funders of kind of wanting to see like, what is going to be the measurable impact on emissions? Well, when you're thinking about that, it's going to keep you sort of more constrained, right, to the site of impact in terms of leveraging solutions or policy instruments. Um, but the enabling environment for all of that to happen depends on shifting culture and building power. You know, we've we've seen longstanding inequity in terms of who gets access to resources for climate work. Um, again, I'm most familiar with uh, with with data about the U.S., but but it's it's true globally as well that like, the majority of climate funding is going to efforts that are led by white men, and we definitely want them on the team, right? But there's been kind of a you know, sort of a persistent approach that's like facts without feelings, solutions without justice, um, you know, sort of a competitiveness that like thwarts good community building and, and collaboration. And my personal perspective is that those dynamics are not working. Um, and, and so we have to broaden the tent and that means we have to shift who has resources to lead the way. And, and I think the other piece is kind of back to the narrative shaping. Um, Media Matters does a great job tracking um, how much climate coverage is happening on uh, kind of primetime TV and, and other outlets and whose voices are being heard. Um, and again, it is vastly, so vastly undercovered still um, in kind of mainstream media. And then the folks who are invited to, to come be talking heads about these things are mostly white men. Um, I think last year it was roughly like a less than a quarter women um, in 
primetime climate coverage, and then um, less than 10% people of color. So that's very much um, something that's kind of sitting at the at the at the core of my work now. Definitely. Uh, one quick follow up from me, and then I'll turn it over to Grace again. Um, I think it's been really heartening to see how much conversation around climate policy recently has explicitly centered these principles of justice and equity, especially seeing um, proposals from the Biden-Harris administration and recent legislation that talks about the importance of reinvesting in communities of color that have borne the brunt of pollution for decades and also not leaving fossil fuel workers and communities behind. I think it's interesting, though, that a lot of these conversations, especially in Western countries, are taking place on a very domestic focus, especially as it ties in with COVID recovery. It's a, a very strong understanding of within our borders, how is inequity playing out? But there's less of a discussion about these global inequities that are probably much larger in magnitude um, and likely harder to address. So I'm curious, are you worried about an isolationist trend for climate policy, especially post-COVID? Um, and if so, how should we remedy this to bring the conversation back towards these global inequities? I think it's such a great point, Claire. Um, and I, 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 think, I think you're right. Um, I think there is, there is sort of an, Im an imbalance in terms of kind of aperture, right, for what we're thinking about. And I think part of that in the U.S. is because we are so damn far behind, right, because we have been certainly for the last four years, but before that as well, right, basically holding the world hostage in, in a lot of ways in terms of, in terms of our absence of, of, of climate leadership and action. Um, so, so I think that's important, right? And it's no small thing that the Biden administration has become a climate administration, right? That that did not seem likely when Joe Biden launched his campaign. Um, and I think it speaks to really incredible work by both um, the, the kind of policy teams behind other candidates in the race, by the, the sort of research that informed that, by incredible organizing, by particularly um, the youth movement and kind of pushing and pushing this sort of race to the top um, on climate policy. And so I think there are actually potentially some lessons there, right? That if we want to like make sure that, that we're not having this purely domestic isolationist look, that we need to be working across those leverage points to get, you know, again, thinking about the U.S., to get the administration um, to, to, to go there. And I, I have no idea what to expect um, from COP26, which I think will also have a lot to do with, like, do we genuinely move into an era of, of global collaboration? And so maybe taking a step back a bit, you know, we see that a lot of these issues come down to policy. And that's actually the reason why I'm interested in, in the policy side of things. But what about, you know, everyone listening in on this who might not be able to, um, who might not be working on policy or on that side? What advice do you give? How can you create such change and influence when you don't have that position of authority? So I, I feel like it's a really, what's really exciting about this moment is that we basically need every available 
superpower <laughs> on climate. Like basically like whatever you've got, whatever your magic is, like we need it. Um, you know, whether that is, you know, design and digital expertise, whether that is research and analysis, whether that is organizational leadership, whether that's grassroots organizing, like it, the, the need is so vast and every decision-making space on some scale is a climate decision-making space today. I think we see a lot of folks trying to kind of now, which is great, like sort of move, kind of move laterally into, into the climate space, which is incredibly exciting. But I think there's still too much sense of like, well, I have to stop doing what I've been doing and start doing this instead of like, actually, how do you bring climate leadership into whatever context you're in? I think what we need more of is help for people to think about like what are the like what are the skills that I have, right? What are my sort of resources and talents that I can tap into? And then what are the needs in the space and how do we create more Venn diagrams there? The only credential that is needed is to be alive on this planet in this moment. And I was actually just talking with kind of a friend and, and mentor yesterday about a documentary about the, the first people's assembly on climate, which happened in the UK, I think maybe a year or two ago. Um, and what a beautiful illustration it is of people stepping into climate leadership for the first time um, and taking ownership of not just the challenge, but ownership of designing what the solution should look like and what the future is. I, I really love that note. Um, and I absolutely agree in terms of the importance of having everybody on board for the climate movement, not necessarily just as climate activists themselves, but in, in every profession they have, because ultimately um, we all work on climate change because we're all impacted by it and we all contribute to it to a certain extent. As those climate impacts are becoming more clear, and which I think is a lot of the reason why more people are being drawn in to work on climate change now is we're actually yeah. feeling the effects already. Yeah. Um, how, how are you seeing your work begin to evolve from more mitigation focus to reduce carbon emissions and then moving towards adaptation to live with the impacts of climate change that we've already built in? Um, how are you strategizing about that either in terms of the topics that you focus on or the way that you picture the rest of your career evolving? So I, I think in some ways it's, it's sort of unfortunate that kind of in expert climate discourse, we landed with the sense that there is mitigation and then there is adaptation. There are so few mitigation solutions that don't also have adaptation resilience potential. Um, and and so I think part of it is about layering in those priorities, right? As we design um, for emissions reduction and also supporting carbon sinks, um, right? That like, you know, regenerative agriculture is not just, you know, carbon rich soil, but it is actually more resilient in terms of a food system, right? Better able to withstand drought and extreme weather. And that's just like, one very isolated um, example. But I think, yeah, I guess I'm sort of a hopeless interdisciplinarian. Um, and I, 
I think a lot of what I have tried to do in terms of, 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 of my work on climate is to bring a more like holistic perspective um, that we can't just be thinking about a single sector, right? Yes, fossil fuels are like three quarters or so of the problem, but they're not the whole problem. Um, we have to be thinking about a whole ecosystem of solutions. We've got to be thinking about a whole set of levers for moving solutions forward. Um, we've got to be thinking both about the near term and the long term. And, and similarly, you know, we have to be thinking both about like how we turn off the spigot of carbon and survive the carbon that we've already put into, into the atmosphere. Um, and so I hope that we're actually moving towards a more integrated conversation. I, I, I think I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of rough road ahead. Um, and I think it's also why we have to be strengthening kind of the, the human system <laughs> at the same time that we're strengthening our energy and transportation and building and, and all these other systems, right? Um, because we have to take care of each other. How do you manage with climate anxiety and climate grief, particularly for young, you know, the younger generation who might just see, um, you know, the future is very much doom and gloom. Um, what advice do you give um, for managing that? Yeah, I think the first thing is just to to say that that's it's really real, right? To like to have our eyes open to what is already unfolding, right? On on this planet is like if it's if that doesn't bring up grief, fear, anxiety, anger, <laughs> like all of those things, um, you know, then you're probably not paying attention. For me, things that have helped are a like making space to feel those feelings, um, which is not something we do a lot of. I have a really good therapist who is kind of climate aware and and plugged in, and there's more and more of of those folks out in in the world. I'm part of a a monthly circle that I've been in for a number of years um, that has been just a source of like grounding and nourishment. And also being, you know, I live, I live in Atlanta, I live in the city, but trying to, um, to actually be, be in nature for me, like I just, I, I like, I love mountains. Um, that's like, that's where my, like where my soul wants to be, um, like with moss and ferns and, um, uh, and, and yeah, so trying to just actually feel connected to the life force. And that helps me to actually feel small in a really helpful way, <laughs> right? Um, that this is, this is something that is so much bigger than we are, and it is bigger than the forces of destruction um, that are currently at work as well. So many thoughts and feelings and reflections out of that very well put together answer. Um, I'll just ask one follow-up question. Has, has there been any point in your work where you felt like you couldn't go on or you felt like giving up? And if so, what, what gave you the strength and resolve to push through that? I actually found that doing a defill was not the most energizing experience on the planet. 
Um, and I happened to, I, I now know that like, I really don't like to work alone. I really love to work in partnership. Um, and I think like a collaborative defil is a great idea that someone should open, open the way for. Um, I think if I could do anything over, it would be to center collaboration, um, at like the heart of my decision-making sooner. Um, Ayana is like the best partner I could ever ask for. Um, like so much so that it makes me like teary eyed. Um, and, and like, nobody tells you that, right. Everybody says like, figure out, you know, the discipline you want to be in and the skill set you want to have. And, you know, and it's like, actually just the people you're going to work the most intimately with, that's really what, what matters don't go it alone. I think that's true on the climate, like grief and anxiety. It's true on the work side. Um, just don't go it alone. Great bit to leave it there. Don't go it alone. <laughs> uh, this has been incredibly insightful, Catherine, and we really have to thank you for your time. I'm so glad that you're working in this communication space because you have so much knowledge and passion to share with the rest of the world. And I think the more we hear from you, the more change um, that we can see. Seconded on all of the above. This is such a great conversation. I just wish we had more time, uh, both for this conversation and I guess for general climate uh, action as well. Um, but thank you for all of the brilliant insights and inspirations that you brought with us today. There will be many, many more conversations like this in the Rhodes Climate Leadership Series. So definitely check back on the Rhodes Trust YouTube channel to hear more wonderful conversations with wonderful people. And I think with that, we'll wrap up. Thank you so much. This is really wonderful. There's an enormous amount of thought and planning that goes into good questions. Um, so thank you. Thank you for those. Um, and just for a really generative conversation.